For Arizona Public Media, I'm Peter Michaels, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the race for the White House in Arizona. Truck traffic congestion at the U.S.-Mexico border. Survival training for Air Force pilots at Davis-Monthan. And a spotlight stairwell session with singer-songwriter Carlos Arzate. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The U.S. presidential election takes place on November the 8th in Arizona. Early voting starts on October the 12th. Joining me now is Lorraine Rivera, host of Arizona Week, which this week takes a look at all four presidential candidates who will be on the ballot. Lorraine, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pretty unusual campaign season so far this year. How's it playing out in Arizona? It's very interesting to watch. A lot of people growing a little uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric that they're hearing. But if you ask the Republicans, they say Republican stronghold in Arizona will continue. The Democrats say not so fast. We could go back to what happened in 96 when Arizona voted for a Democrat. Meantime, the Green and the Libertarian Party say, hey, don't count us out just yet because some people might be looking for new options. And registered voters in Arizona in the Republican Party, what are their numbers? About 1.1 million uh, registered Republicans in Arizona, about 990,000 registered Democrats, and then 1 million independents. So the numbers are very high. I would say that there is some competitiveness there. So for the Green Party, there are about 5,000. Libertarian, there are about 25,000. So those numbers have continued to see some slow growth, but that, of course, could be said across the nation as well. The Libertarian Party candidate is going to be on the ballot in all 50 states, but on the Green Party side, she will only be on the ballot in about two dozen states. That's correct. Jill Stein um, is the Green Party candidate, and there she's seen a, some momentum, but it's Gary Johnson is the person to look out for on the Libertarian side, because right now he's polling at about 10%. If he makes it to about 15%, we very well could see him on a debate stage with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And there has been some talk recently about Arizona being in play this election year. I know it's been a stronghold for years for Republicans. Have you been talking to the people that have touched on that subject a little bit? Absolutely. This week I spoke with the uh, Trump spokesperson and director here in Arizona, and he says there's really three tiers of what are considered states to watch for. And he says Arizona is considered one of those second tier states. He said that's the case right now. Moving forward, though, it very likely could be a battleground state. Okay. Lorraine, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you, Peter. You can learn more about the candidates on Arizona Week on PBS 6, Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Saturday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. Mexico is Arizona's number one trading partner to the tune of more than $30 billion a year. And every year, more than a quarter of a million trucks pass through the Mariposa port of entry at Nogales. But before the trucks can cross the border, customs agents on both sides must inspect them. 
It's a process that wastes time and money, but now an unprecedented solution may have been found for those long wait times. Nancy Montoya has our story. The tractor trailers move slowly. Drivers idle the engines, inching up towards the U.S.-Mexico border inspection station. Drivers have to unload their trucks, get Mexican customs to inspect the goods, and reload. Then repeat the process on the U.S. side. Now, depending on the time of day or the season or the number of available customs agents, the wait can take all day. The average, at least three and a half hours. It's just the way it works. It's the way it has always worked, until now. This is an historic occasion. It's, a, it's an important occasion for all of us. The things important enough to get Gil Kurlinkowski, the commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, to travel from Washington, D.C. to the Mariposa Port of Entry in Nogales. Important enough to draw top Mexican government officials to the border for a joint announcement. The things we're talking about today are just very important to improving the speed of commerce. And with the speed of commerce, that means that both of our economies do better. The solution to those long wait times stifling commerce crossing the Arizona-Sonora border? Well, it's not a new high-tech device. It's not more cameras or more inspectors. It is a ridiculously simple solution called cooperation. The real name is the Unified Cargo Processing Project. Like I said, cooperation. Instead of unloading, inspecting, and reloading, then repeating the process on the other side, why not just put teams of Mexican and U.S. Customs officials together and do the entire process just once? It saves time and money. Now, earlier this month, both the U.S. and Mexico agreed to this unified cargo processing project as a 90-day pilot program to see if it worked as good in reality as it did on paper. This is an historic time. It's been going on for a little over a week, and we get to take a lot of credit for this. But frankly, the credit goes to the people who have thought this through, who have put this together, people from both of our teams. The results? It's working. In the first week, the wait times were cut an average of 85 percent, from around three and a half hours to just 25 minutes. John Doyle, the mayor of Nogales, Arizona, sees an end to the bottleneck commercial traffic lines. Now that they're, they can see that they can cut, you know, from three and a half hours to 25 minutes waiting time, that means that those truck lines are going to disappear. Mayor Doyle, are you ready to steal some business away from Texas and California? Well, I think, uh, I think the word is compete. And right there, that is what this is all about, cooperation to compete. You see, right now, Arizona is behind Texas and California in attracting business from and with Mexico. Over the past few years, our state's congressional delegation and business community has been able to wrestle millions of federal dollars out of Washington to upgrade and greatly improve the infrastructure of the Mariposa Crossing to, in turn, improve trade with Mexico. 
But the political firestorm created in 2010 by SB 1070 under a Republican legislature and Governor Jan Brewer created a rift with this state's relationship with Mexico. SB 1070 was seen in Mexico as anti-immigrant and very unwelcoming, not just to the Mexican people, but unwelcoming to Mexican businesses. When Doug Ducey, also a Republican, was elected governor, he vowed to repair the damage done to the relationship with Mexico. Without that leadership, chances are this pilot program at the border would never have happened. Here's Tucson Mayor Jonathan Rothschilds, a Democrat, who was also at the ceremony to announce the pilot border program. But what this means for us as a region is that we are going to move our commerce more quickly, we are going to be more secure, and it really is something that the country should know about when there's all this wrong focus, clearly wrong if you're on the ground, to say, no, look what's really happening here. And that's the message we want to get out. And it is, say those at this inaugural event, a good message. It shows that when you lower the volume of political rhetoric and work towards a common and mutually beneficial goal, things can get done, and it can be a good thing for both countries. Air Force pilots need to prepare for battle and for what might happen if things go wrong during military operations. At Davis-Monthan Air Force Base here in Tucson, pilots and crews train for the worst by certifying in a program called SEER, which stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. The training is intended to make sure they return safely and in good health. Mitch Riley has their story. Afghanistan. A pilot has been shot down behind enemy lines. With Air Force A-10 support, an Army helicopter brings a combat search and rescue team to the injured pilot. That is the scene playing out in the air and on the ground near Ruby, Arizona, 75 miles south of Tucson. In the homeland, survival training for these wartime missions is ongoing. It prepares pilots and crew for worst-case scenarios. If you want to talk real world, I mean, uh, more than likely, uh, if it was a terrorist group looking for them or enemy troops even looking for them, they'd want to capture them rather than kill them because they can use that against us. With survival medicine, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you bail out, you eject out, you ditch your aircraft. Um, there's a good possibility. Tech Sergeant Tony Fancher is a survival training specialist. He teaches airmen how to survive alone under adverse conditions. The program is known as SEER, or Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Every three years, those who are at high risk for isolation must recertify in this program. Well, this week, I mean, it's been full bird kernels to, you know, all the way down to A1Cs. Um, it, and it's usually that way each month. You know, it, it'll be a big array of, 
you know, different ranks, um, whether it's enlisted or officer. And then to get out of there, just hit the page. Mainly the reason why we have this is uh, more of an insurance policy, so they have a means to be able to, you know, get back home uh, with honor and in good health. Get ready to drag, and I'll be over there in a second. One of the airmen recertifying is Staff Sergeant Whitney Levering. She is a cryptologic airborne linguist. Her language specialty is Persian Farsi, primarily spoken in Iran and Afghanistan. Her work happens in the air on the EC-130 Compass Call. It's a jamming platform. We deny and degrade and disrupt a lot of the enemy communications. And that communications part is where the linguist falls into place. But it's not just about us, we also work with a mission crew supervisor who works closely with the electronic warfare officers. All together we work as this one unit. Don't forget to feet apart. Okay, feet apart. Today, Levering's plane has been hit by enemy fire. She's parachuted from her plane and landed in an unknown body of water. With any stressful situation, your mind gives you a block and it really impacts how you're physically reacting to something. And so by doing this water survival training, it allows us to take a step back and to actually see how much stress is putting on you and the ways that you can manage that and then react accordingly. Sergeant Fancher sees this training as a kind of practice run, a way to prepare airmen in harm's way how best to react, respond, and return home. You hear people like during active shooter situations, you know, where you hear about people freezing, you know, and that's where they go over that stress curve and they're like, you know, I don't know what to do, so I'm just like frozen, you know, and frozen with fear. Uh, incorporating that stress inoculation with these guys, that actually helps them to overcome that fear. SEER training includes classroom work, where pilots and crew are briefed on previous missions and what did and didn't work. There are lighthearted moments that break the mood. But they all know this is serious business, and people's lives are at stake. From the classroom, they move into simulated parachute jumps. Most aircrew have never jumped out of an airplane before, uh, let alone did it from an in-flight emergency or their plane being shot down. Uh, in this case, the C-130 guys, you know, would be bailing out, and they need to know what their actions are under canopy. All right, so you hit, cut. The training continues on a rainy day in the desert. It's probably getting down below 50 degrees. They're going to be wet. They're going to be really wet out there. November, Papa, how copy. The scenario that I set up for them was, you know, they were shot down in enemy territory. Now they were evading. First thing they want to do is make sure they, you know, everyone's okay. Some of those pilots would be by themselves and then gather any equipment that they want to take with them. And then they get out of Dodge. They want to break contact with that spot as well as the enemy, putting time and distance between them. At that point, they want to just try to find some concealment so they can calm down and assess their situation, maybe drink a little bit of water, and then start performing the actions they need to do to get, to get home. If you're just running through the woods willy-nilly and not really paying attention, you're going to run into another enemy patrol and get captured. And sometimes they fail putting a finer point on what could happen if they are captured. Americans! Sergeant Fancher is the enemy in this scenario. I see you. Come out. Is there more than you? It's just me. 
Bancher breaks down the flaws in the airman's attempt to remain concealed. Yeah, you were out in the open. I mean, it's pretty open right here. Uh, maybe using some of those low-lying spots right there. Some of those, you got some trees back there. Ten-year veteran Sergeant Tony Fancher has deployed as a SEER specialist on numerous missions, training U.S. servicemen in conflict zones on contested ground. I hope they take away that, you know, this could happen to them and that they're not invincible. There's a few pilots out there that I know, you know, they think this will never happen to them. Um, but that history has shown, you know, that you know, we go to war with someone, more than likely this will happen. The history of war does bear that out. Fancher wears a permanent reminder on his skin. Uh, this is a tattoo that represents POWMIA. There's a guy in a box here, you know, you can see his head and a blindfold right there. I actually got this picture off of a book called Survivors. Uh, it's about uh, several POWs in Vietnam. It reminds me of why I do this job. The air crew, people who are at high risk, you know, they get captured, they could become POWs. All right, so we got warmth right here, right? I've thought about it, and it's definitely a scary thought, but going through this survival training, uh, it gives me a little more of a comfort and confidence, I guess you can say, in at least I have a direction of what I should do. Sergeant Levering's last deployment was to Bagram, Afghanistan, where her unit provided communication support to special forces on the ground. She joined the Air Force primarily to gain experience and fund her education. Whitney Levering got much more than she expected. You're really, you're really close. I mean, we go through this survival training together. We go through a lot of training together. There's only so many crew members on the plane. And so you get to know each other very, very well. And it's like a little family while you're flying. And you know everybody's quirks and their flaws and their strengths. And it gives you a sense of belonging. And I think any person in a career or in their life wants to feel part of something that's bigger than themselves. And the Air Force has really given me that. Mitch also produced this story for Arizona Illustrated, and you can view the video online at azpm.org. And now an encore presentation of a spotlight stairwell session with Mark McLemore and singer and songwriter Carlos Arzate. Carlos Arzate says one of his earliest connections to music came from singing along to Prince and Rick James on the radio. You can hear that kind of soul in his music today, combined with a social conscience and heartfelt lyrics about the personal politics of life and love. Carlos Arzate visited the AZPM studios to record a private concert in an unusual space for this stairwell session. When I was listening to you play Justice in the World, is that the name of that one? It's called Life, Liberty, Less, The Honest. Um, well, I felt like you were carrying on the kind of political promise that folk music made to address issues and, and to be frank in your lyrics. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear artists of that time or, or like uh, critics of music say that that's dead and that's not around anymore. And I, it just 
makes me cringe because it is you know it's a it's a visceral feeling and like a it's a populist idea to want to sing about what you see as transgressions or injustices or call out things that you know ends that don't meet and we're supposed to just believe and and swallow those things and just speaking about it it's easy easy enough to get marginalized you know and, and shout it out and shout it down but when there's a melody involved it's a it's a little easier to deliver a narrative that's not necessarily uh, cynical but more of a, an account an accounting of of our state of affairs but even when you're talking about social justice and things like that there's a simplicity to your lyrics that makes me think that you don't have to work that hard to fit them into the song you know we're, we're not necessarily creators or originators um, if, as songwriters I feel like every song has been sang every melody has been you know sang before written before in another time not even in our modern history of recorded history or or, or instruments that we have now, maybe another time, thousands and thousands of years ago, there's a rhythm to the planet even. <laughs> and I feel like uh, if we just listen uh, and, we, and we tune in to that vein uh, of that inspiration, then then we become really oracles of it and we get the benefit, or I, I personally get the benefit of, of revealing a narrative. Cyril Barrett said, uh, he told me, we don't write the songs. I got to show him that song, My Darling Dear, that I wrote for my sister, that I, that came to me when I was in, in a sick place, when I was in a vulnerable place. That song was inspired to me, and I showed it to him, and he, he listened to it, and he's like, you didn't write that song, man. He's like, that, it's uh, you, you unveiled it. it with a smile on his face, like we, we're smiling because it's true. Like, uh, I like to, like to think that I'm just sitting down to create a song, but I'm really just hearing uh, the notion in unveiling it. Which I told you, yeah. When you were doing that, it sounded I could really hear that. That was, I think, that was the "Be a Better Lover" song. Yeah, that's an interesting thing for a man to sing, and a, a good thing. Do you have anything to tell us about where that song came from? You know, relationships. I'm in a long-term relationship. I've been married. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, and uh, relationships are seasons. We always learn about the the springs and the summers, you know. And everybody wants the spring and the summer, but. There also there's also the fall and the winter, you know, and there's also, there's adversity in relationships, and 
it takes work to be successful and you know and, and you know you want to have a, the majority of that time spent together it feels like the spring and the summer but there's I'm referencing the work that it takes and the acknowledgement that it takes to be a better a better listener a better caretaker you know and not just like oh don't complain let's just be happy you know like there's no room for that but we're living in a we're living in tough times where it's a lot easier to hate today than it is to love it's a lot easier to discard and tear down things than to build them and it's, so it's really important to to try to <laughs> train yourself to be uh, cognizant of those things you know a man for all seasons Carlos Orzate and his band, The Kind Souls, have just released a new album called Got Me Wrong. This stairwell session was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood with assistance from Jameson Waddell. You can listen to the complete set at azpm.org. That's our show, and we thank you for listening. You can also find us on iTunes. Our show originates from the Arizona Public Media Radio Studios, the music is by Calexico. Our production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. I'm Peter Michaels. Mark McLemore returns next week. <laughs>